The order to fix bayonets was passed along. A faint streak of greenish gold light showed up in the east to our right front. I looked at my watch and thought of saying of the men, another minute and we'll be for it. It's almost time. Just as the luminous dial of one's wristwatch indicated 3.50 a.m., a long, jagged line of flame burst from the ground some way in front of us. It was followed by a hollow roar, which was followed by a tremendous brack as our field guns opened fire. A flooded Amazon of steel flowed roaring, immensely fast. Over our heads and the machine gun bullets made a pattern of sharper purchase in maniac language against a diluvian rush. Flaring lights, small ones, great ones, flew up and went spinning sideways in the cloud of night. And this marked the opening of a series of battles to which we now call the Battle of Passchendaele. Hello everyone and welcome to the first, it is not the first episode of What About the Canadians, but it is an episode of What About the Canadians, a history podcast. (laughs) My name is Ashley. (laughs) And my name is Shauna and we're two rookie historians bringing to you the Canadian history you should know. (gasps) Oh man, I'm starting good. So this season we'll be discussing <laughs> Canadian perspective. More specifically, we will examine the battles that the Canadians served in. Wow, that was quite the intro. They know Ash. the spiel. <laughs> They've been here. They know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good heavens. All right, so we are back full into the Battle of Passchendaele. Now, those quotes you heard were firsthand accounts from Major Cecil Barton, Lieutenant Ulrich Burke, and uh, both officers were from the British Expeditionary Force. So we're getting into some intense intensity here, Shauna. <laughs> it is. Well, you know, we're closing we're sort of closing in on the end of the war here. It's like getting down to the real nitty gritty of it. And today we're going to be talking about Hill 70 mostly, which is kind of part of the Passchendaele offensive. But, you know, there's it. Hill 70 is actually a pretty big battle compared to some of them and not big like time length because it, it was actually relatively short, but just... The importance of it and the, you can kind of feel the the end of the war coming, right? Like there's it's coming to a head, I think. I think so. I feel there's also maybe a lev- level of like desperation to plunge ahead and get mm-hmm. this thing over with. I mean, they're three years into it by now. I mean, they're tired. Yeah. And they thought they were going to be done by Christmas. That's right. right. So Of 1914. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not no, 1917. Right. <laughs> All right. So before we get into the Battle of Hill 70, we're going to talk about the Battle of Pilkim Ridge. And this is the first sort of real battle into the Battle of Passchendaele. All right. So Haig had been warned. The Ypres salient was on a floodplain, and the weather in July and August was unpredictable at best with September being wet every three and four years, and October being wet every nine and ten. Now, Steenbeck Valley, or what we call the Blue Line, um, now we talked about this in the last episode, so it's okay if you don't remember, but the Blue Line is our first line. It's Pilkin Bridge. So now this Blue Line was especially susceptible to flooding. Stories about the swamps of Passchendaele had been circulating, and with a broken drainage system, Haig feared that the front would become impassable and effectively thwart the offensive before it even began. So stressed by the need for immediacy, Haig pushed off to launch an attack on July 31st, 1917. Uh, so, yeah, I'm thinking that these guys aren't going to fare too well weather-wise. Uh, statistically, it doesn't sound great. No, no, I think it's that sounds terrible. And it's just, I mean, they've been warned and we've seen that in the past three years of the war that it's been horrible weather. So, 
more of the same, yay. Oh, I know. And to and to boot, like this this ground's already completely destroyed as it is. <laughs> like Yeah, it's been taking shells for like three years. Doesn't sound good. No. Alrighty. So just a, a quick recap for everybody. Again, their object they had four objectives um on on the Ypres salient. So there was the blue line, which is Pilkham Bridge. The black line is the reverse slopes of Pilkham Bridge. Uh, the green line uh, is going to be sort of across the Galavo Plain. And the red is on the slopes of Passchendaele. So when we begin, we have on the left flank, the first French army, and they steadily advance from the Iser Canal at zero hour, reaching their final objective by early evening. Yay! <laughs> the French had an easy go. I applaud you. <laughs> now, to, to the left, uh, the British 14th Corps of the 5th Army maneuvered across no man's land towards the Ypres-Staden Railway. Now, although the men occupying the German front lines had long disappeared, its effects were not calming enough on the nerves. And inevitably, as of course we already know, some of the men began losing their sensibilities. Now, this is a quote from Private Ivor Watkins. As the barrage opened, it was terrific. One person broke down. He started screeching like a pig. You've heard a pig screeching. Well, he screeched like a struck pig. He was sent back. It was no fault of his. It wasn't cowardice. His nerves just went. Now, the first wave of men in the 14th Corps secured the Black Line with little resistance, giving ground to the supporting brigades to further the assault. But by this time, the Germans had began to regroup, and their resistance to the advance had strengthened. Now, Lieutenant Lord Gage was uh, an individual in this battle, and he was hit in the chest. And I just had to share the story because I thought it was a little bit funny, but... Uh, so he was hit in the chest and he was laying on the ground completely dazed, wondering like, am I alive? Am I dead? I have no, I have no idea what's going on. So a runner came up to him and hovered over him and he said, and I'm not quite sure what kind of accent this is, but I'm going to do my best. Oh He's no. Like, God, sir, you're a goner. It's plumbed through your bloody heart. <laughs> Imagine having somebody run up to you <laughs> saying that. It was a different time. And honestly, his accent probably didn't sound like that. Probably not. <laughs> but to make matters kind of even worse, there were, by this time, I guess they had captured some German POWs and they were, um, I guess, carrying him back to the, like, to the back lines to get medical aid, but they got disorientated and they started carrying him further into no man's land. Oh no. <laughs> they had to instruct them how to like get back <laughs> to the rear. Oh my God. I'm guessing he lived because he, he told the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. So um, to the right of the 14th Corps was the British 39th Division of the 18th Corps. Um, and they were successful in capturing the village of St. Julien. Now, you've probably heard that name before because we've talked about it in previous episodes um, where there was uh, some success and then not success in capturing this little village. So sounds like they've probably lost it a few times since then. <laughs> and they've now recaptured it. Now, the 3rd Guards and the 51st Highland Division reached their final objective, taking the east side of Stanbeck. Um, now, the 19th Corps attacked along the Ypres-Rouillet Railway on the north side of Saint-Julien. Now, they fought heavily to reach the 3rd Line, um, but uh, took positions just beyond the zonnebeck Langemark Road. Now, the 2nd Corps was given responsibility of advancing on the Gelavolt Plateau. Now, this was a crucial high point that had, like, had had to be captured. Now, while some of the divisions reached their objectives, others unfortunately did not. The 30th Division faced heavy shell fire, and in the chaos, they accidentally advanced over their own artillery, so they were left exposed 
to German machine gunners on the reverse slopes of the plateau. Now, several units were hit hard and they became disorientated, leaving the 18th Division exposed. Now, a reserve battalion was sent to close the gap, allowing the 25th Brigade to re- pardon me, reach the reverse slopes and then hold the line. So as we kind of already know, German defensive strategy at this point in time um, is to protect the front lines with as little manpower as possible. Because, I mean, essentially, as the enemy advances further into your territory, the less effective artillery becomes. Therefore, you're leaving said enemy exposed. So then I guess essentially you have an advantage in your counterattack in that both the men are mentally and physically exhausted by the time they reach some of those further lines. So in general, units that had had their communications cut off uh, were eventually pushed back by the Germans. And this included the men of the 18th Corps that had captured St. Julien and the support brigades of the 8th Division that had to withdraw back to the Green Line. So reserve units were sent to the front, but passage through no man's land was slow, It was arduous. I mean, they had to trudge through mud and shell holes and craters and all that yuck stuff. Basically, yuck stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great description for Ashley. Um, Anyway, so I know I I threw a lot of information at you. We're not going to go into a ton of detail about these battles. But in the end, it means that the men had taken the blue and black lines with the exception of Gallivo Plateau. So not even the black line had been taken. Um, uh, again, I think the British were probably being too ambitious and thereby spreading themselves a little too thin. So taking, I think realistically, they could have taken the first and second lines, um, which they of course did, but we know how anxious the commanders are to push everything as far as they can. And because of that, they lost 27 to 30,000 uh, men. And by loss, I mean those are both um, POWs, deaths, and um, injured men. So that's no um, small, small amount of people. No, that's like an entire town. Oh, totally. It's crazy. It, I guess there was... We could say they had mixed success, some success. Uh, So they had plans to attack again on August the 2nd because they needed to capture that black line on the Gallivo Plateau. But as probably expected, the weather had taken a turn for the worst. Now, between July 31st and August 2nd, 43 millimeters of rain had already fallen. Streams began to overflow and flood the battlefields. Now, misery on the front lines spread like wildfire, and there was just no solace to be had. So the the men kind of began to believe that the brass were basically ignorant of their condition and were getting a little ticked off. But on one particular afternoon, uh, Lieutenant Sidney Goldsmith recounted, I was sitting in the battery commander's post, talking to the captain over a cup of tea, and he said, I can hear voices outside. Hey, go have a look. So I went outside, and just as I turned around the end of the shelter to look, there was a general sitting there. He sat there with his hands on his head, his elbows on his knees, and he was crying like a baby. I heard him say, My God, I've been sending my men into that. Evidently, it was the first time they'd been up the line, and he really couldn't believe what he'd seen. Yeah, I thought it was rather poignant um, to have a general sitting and crying about what he was seeing his men having to endure. But I also thought it was interesting that maybe that they didn't really have an idea of what was going on. Yeah, I feel like they probably should have known. You would think. Why didn't they visit all the time? Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't their job, I guess. Uh, I feel like it should be. They got runners for that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, um, so Prime Minister David Lloyd George was completely furious with the idiocy of the high command. 
He stated, figures show what a reckless gamble it was to risk the life of the British army on the chance of a rainless autumn on the Flemish coast, as if it had never rained before in that dripping climate. But unfortunately, it was too little too late. They were in the midst of the hell of Passchendaele. So, as we know, the 18th Division had fallen behind on the Gellivote Plain after losing in a series of counterattacks. And so, as soon as the rain started to break, Goff called for a secondary attack to help move the 18th up the line. And simultaneously, at this time, he was going to send the 25th to secure uh, the line on West Hoek Ridge and therefore hopefully taking this very critical objective so they could move on to their next large scale advance. But unfortunately, this attack was to a complete failure. The 25th Division secured the second line up to Glencourse Wood and Inverness Cops, but the 18th just could not get their footing into the plains. And this is almost too quite literally because it was just so muddy, they couldn't really go anywhere. So this left Goff um, pondering what to do. And that brings us into our next little adventure on Hill 70. So Hill 70 is not at Passchendaele where Ashley's talking about right now. It's about, I'm not sure, I think it's about 100 kilometers south of the Ypres. Well, where Ypres is in that kind of area, they they brought the battle down to that area um, and it's, very creatively named Hill 70 because it is 70 meters above sea level. The hill overlooks the town of Lens, which is in northern France. And Lens had been occupied by the Germans for most of the war. It had gone back and forth, but mostly Germans had held that territory. Except for a small period in 1915 during the Battle of Luz, when the British took the ridge and then quickly lost it again. So before this battle, Curry was ordered to take Lens directly, but after he visited the area, he decided it would be better to take the hill before moving on to the town, since the Germans would most likely easily surround the town if they still had the hill, and they would have the best view from up on top of the hill to see what was going on down in the town. Uh, he had to meet with General Haig, the commander of the British Army, directly to convince him to adjust the plans. And after Vimy and Curry's promotion that Ashley talked about, I believe it was last episode, Haig really trusted Curry and trusted his judgment and he allowed him to make whatever plans he needed to at Hill 70. So before the battle, in true Curry fashion, the soldiers were put through intense training on a practice battlefield. It was laid out as accurately as possible and even the town... Um, Lens and the surrounding suburbs that were there. There's a few little, um, I guess they're sub suburbs that had miners living there before the war. All of that was laid out. Soldiers knew the names of streets. They knew the names of buildings. So they knew where they would be and there would be as few surprises as possible when they went into battle. This was because Curry knew that if the lead officers were killed or injured, they would need the individual men to know what to do instead of the old-fashioned British top-down. We talked a lot about that in Vimy, and it was it's kind of his trademark by now in the war. So in addition, there was Colonel McNaughton, and he was the Corps counter-battery staff officer, and he began targeting German guns to remove them before the infantrymen had to cross into no man's land. McNaughton was in charge of three counter-battery groups, which had a total of 58 guns and 16 were earmarked to harass the 102 German batteries. And by August 15, 1917, the Canadian guns had pummeled 40 German batteries out of the fight. So they were starting off pretty strong there. They came out swinging. They're making good use, good use of that artillery, finally. Absolutely. I think that's another trademark of Curry's, too, was using heavy artillery to just bully these Germans. Absolutely. So uh, the first and the second divisions were lined up at the base of the ridge, making up the first division at the north end. The third infantry brigade, then moving down was the second brigade. And then the second division had the fifth infantry brigade, then moving south was the fourth. 
And actually, the 6th Brigade pushed through after the initial push from the 4th. I know that was a lot of numbers, and I kind of promised Ashley I would not go that deep <laughs> into the numbers, but I had to lay it out in my head as I was looking at the maps and thinking about it. It's hard not to, because a lot of sources, that's how they like relayed the information as well. So Yeah. Oh, and finally, the 10th Brigade was at the most southern end closest to Lens. So I didn't want to forget them in there. But yes, I mean, we kind of got to lay it out. And there's maps online and we can link to those because that might give a better visual than I can describe it. Um, The 10th was mostly used as diversionary tactics. Um, So the Germans, the, the 10th is the one at the bottom near the town. Um, they were used so the Germans would think that the main attack was actually coming to the town and it would draw more Germans into the town and away from the ridge. And actually, I don't know, I don't think I mentioned this in the beginning, but this whole battle is diversionary. They're trying to drag as many troops as they can away from the battles Ashley was talking about up there. They want to draw them down, take them out of that fight and just... Get rid of them. That makes sense. They need it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Anything to make it easier on the people that are a little bit north of there is is really important at this point. Because as Ashley mentioned, with the rain coming down, it was wet, it was soggy. Things were not looking great for them. And in Lens, it was rainy and it was gross, but it wasn't quite to that extent because it wasn't a battlefield that had seen as much action and it wasn't getting the weather that they were getting up there either. It was it was important for this battle to make it seem really important and be bring a big show. The Canadians went over the top at 4:25 a.m. on August 15th, 1917, and with more than 5,000 Canadians in 10 battalions. They had over 200 artillery pieces to support the initial bombardment. That's a lot of guns. Um, They had the creeping barrage and a something called a jumping bombardment, which I don't think we've talked about before. And I had never heard that term before. And I didn't want to sound stupid. So I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find anything about what exactly a jumping bombardment is. Um, I was reading Tim Cook's book. He's my go-to for our World War I research. And he mentioned they had a jumping bombardment and he never explained what it was. So he was absolutely no help to me (laughs) there. But (laughs) I've never heard of it either. Yeah, I'm just going to imagine that instead of creeping across the battlefield as the creeping barrage would, maybe it jumps from one target to another. I don't know. Feel free to correct me. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it sounds like a game of leapfrog, maybe. Yeah, that's kind of what I was picturing. I I can't be that important. I don't know. I mean, not in our context to explain it right now. I'm sure it was very important in the battle, but... That's, tr- that's right. <laughs> so anyway, with the barrage, there was one 18-pounder gun for every 18 meters of the front. Um, so the chronology of it was that ahead of the creeping barrage, they used a jumping bombardment and in the third wall were the largest siege guns focused on strong points, communication trenches, and battery positions. So after this huge bombardment, the infantry rolled through the German front lines with, you know, comparative ease. It, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't the resistance that they had found in previous battles or what they had found even just, you know, what was going on at a very similar time frame just north of there. The German front line was actually closer to the base of the hill and it was really lightly held. It wasn't like Vimy where the German front lines were like right on the ridge at the top. They didn't have to go up that hill in order to reach that. There was a trench very close to the bottom so they could just attack there and then go up afterwards. So in fact, the battle, when the battle was planned, the blue line, which is their first objective, was at the summit of the hill, which was a couple hundred meters beyond the German line. So it was just like roll through that line and keep going until you hit that ridge. So while the intense artillery barrage did its job, we really can't 
dismiss this hand-to-hand combat that was fighting that the infantry did. They did have resistance in a lot of isolated pockets. And when they did, they fought really hard to push those Germans back. And in one instance, a man from the 10th Battalion, and his name was Corporal Nicholas Permel, noticed a group of Germans attempting to bring a machine gun into action at the lip of a shell hole. And he charged the position and he was shot through the arm before reaching the group. And it slowed it down, but it did not stop him. Instead of hitting the ground or retreating, he tipped the gun back into the hole and forced the surrender of all the officers and the surviving men. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was just like, no, this ain't gonna happen. And he pushed their machine gun back into the hole. Was he a Victoria Cross winner? No, I think he survived. Um, and I, I don't think he got, there were six no. Victoria Crosses in this battle, but I don't think he was one of them. Oh, that sounded like it could be. <laughs> There's actually like tons of, I didn't even mention them all in here, tons of like these crazy acts like that, that just, I mean, there's way more than six and there was only six Victoria Crosses. So yeah, pretty- by this time the guys, the, they're probably like, I'm so sick of this, you know, <laughs> Just get it going. (laughs) Yeah, they're just done with it and they're going to finish this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the majority of the men had reached their objective of the blue line within only about a half an hour of going over the top. So it was really quick and they either dug in or they were in the German trenches that they had occupied that they had cleared. So they started turning the trenches around. So they added the steps and the parapets on their defending side. And they waited for a little while. But what they found, what they learned from Vimy, was that they didn't want to wait too long. At Vimy, in a lot of cases, they waited too long. And that led let the Germans launch their attack or get a little bit more organized. But That's here right. they wanted to just go like bang, 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 bang. So they gave them a bit of a break, let them turn around their trenches, and they were back on it. Man, this Curry guy knows what he's doing. So a new barrage started after sh- that short break in the fire uh, coming from the Canadians. But by 5.35 a.m., the barrage had lifted and then the, mo- the men moved on to take their next objective, which was the Green Line. My God, these men did so much in the morning. I can't even, I was just complaining to Ashley about getting up at 5.30 to book my kids swimming lessons. And I was upset about that. And I did that in bed. (laughs) It's a very different time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So the green line ran north to south and the red line, um, it kind of jutted out in the middle of the green line and came towards the Canadian side. So it kind of like the green line went around the red line. Um, But by 6 a.m., the green line, which was the final objective across the line, uh, was not completely secured. There was some trouble around the red line, but it was mostly in Canadian hands. So in securing the line, the 15th Battalion also secured a trench mortar with 500 shells and some prisoners. And when they were questioned about the gun, the prisoners quickly showed the Canadians how the gun worked, where the shells were, which shells to use, and that 36 of those shells actually had gas in them. And when I read this, I totally thought about that scene in Inglorious Bastards when they're in the orchard and they're asking the German soldier to point out their position. And he's just like, yep, right here on that map. So they were just not screwing around. They wanted to just get out alive. I don't remember that scene. Oh, I love it. They, that's one of the scenes. Um, they carve the swastika in one of the general's heads. Okay. I think. And then the the infantryman, uh, he's a private, is just like, yep, here's where they're hiding. Go right. for them. Not, right, not going right. to happen to me. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah. So anyway, the Canadians swung that gun around and started firing on the retreating Germans and any German positions that were still left hanging on there. But before the Canadians could get situated, 
The Germans, of course, were preparing to launch their counterattacks. And over the course of the next couple days, they launched 21 counterattacks, and most of them were pushed back by the Canadians. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a lot of fighting in a relatively short period. No kidding. Yeah, and the Canadians, when they started launching these counterattacks, which was almost immediately, the Canadians started sending in SOS calls to the artillery because they could see, they were up on that ridge, they could see the Germans organizing. And Sergeant... I should have Googled this. Sergeant Routley, or Routley, of the 18th Battalion, which was holding a section of the trench in the middle of City St. Elizabeth, which is one of those suburbs that I mentioned, which was very close to Lenz, described the artillery's response to his SOS call. So this is a quote from him. It says, I dropped to my knees and sent up the SOS and then dropped back again for a few minutes to have a little rest before taking over my job as lookout for the platoon. I never saw such good artillery action in my life. As a matter of fact, I didn't think that the artillery had worked on my SOS at all. I thought that somebody else had seen the Germans coming and had telephoned our artillery before the very lights had finished burning, the heavy machine guns began firing over our heads, and everything on the line of artillery opened up. It was some days later when I was talking to the adjutant of our battalion, Major Bell, that I learned that it was my SOS that they had worked on. He said that he was in the observation post with an officer of the artillery when they saw my SOS, and they immediately telephoned the artillery, who had their guns all laid and ready. So this artillery was super important, and they they went for it, and it it was really effective in this battle. So the infantry had their moment, and while the artillery had done a fantastic job in the creeping barrages, their work with the counterattacks was swift, effective, and deadly. Another shining star in this battle was the continuous wireless wave sets, and I think this is the first time that we've actually discussed this. This was probably one of the first times that I saw it mentioned. This is a new, relatively new technology. And these, they're basically radio sets, allowed the forward observation officers, or foo, I really like that, calling them foo. Foo? Uh, They were men that would stand um, in the back lines, you know, ahead of the artillery um, or above the artillery, but behind the infantry and call in for artillery support with coordinates of what guns they should shoot and where they should shoot them and watch for signals from the front lines. Usually these signals were given by what's called very lights, um, like Sergeant Routley used, and they were flares that were used for signaling um, and lighting up at night. And they came in different colors depending on what was going on and they were fired from a pistol. So the wireless sets were relatively new invention that was just part of the of evolving technology. There were a ton of different types of transmitting and receiving options at this time that were mostly based on the Marconi company designs, which has its ties to Canada, as we've probably, most of us have seen that Heritage Minute. Have you seen that one, Ash? With no. Marconi? Yeah, you must have. With Marconi in, I think it's, is it Nova Scotia or Newfoundland? And they send the first signal across the Atlantic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is that's where the technology started. And I think that was in the late 1800s. Um, but they used that sort of technology to send messages back and forth. Oh, okay. Yeah. When, when I first was reading about these wireless sets, I kind of thought that they would be like walkie-talkies. Like you'd be able to send your voice signal. But that's, that was completely wrong because I'm just thinking in a modern way, but it was Morse code and what they had were these huge antennas that were set up behind the lines to capture the signal. Um, I'm not sure exactly which model they would have used at Hill 70, but from what I can tell, it was probably the WT Set Trench CW Mark III. 
um, the aerial, <laughs> so the big wire, I guess, antenna um, that was set up was could be anywhere from 50 to 150 feet long, depending on the wavelength. Oh, and it wow. was supported on these massive masts. Of course, this made them huge targets, too. So they weren't always <laughs> super was... effective. That's what I was just thinking. I was like, hey, it's like a little flag. Like, hey, come get me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this tech, I, I have to say, this technology, I tried to read a paper on it. And it is so above my head that I could not even comprehend exactly how the technology worked um but i did know that at the start of the war they were using a lot of cable communications sent by big cables that they would run across the battlefield we we've talked about those before and they would get blown up and they weren't overly reliable and actually i did read that the germans could tap into those because they would vibrate on the ground so they would be able to catch their morse code Okay. Yeah, so these ones were a little bit different. The At the beginning of the war with these big cable ones, the only radios that were available were a very few 500-watt and 1,500-watt spark transmitters, and they used crystal detectors. or Yeah, sorry, crystal detector receivers. Again, way above my head. But the 500-watt station had to be carried on the back of four horses but the 1,500-watt station required two carriages to move it. Wow. And there was a power cart, which housed the spark generating set. And then, oh, yeah, and powered by a gas-driven alternator. And then the operating cart. And they were each being drawn by a team of four horses. So these things were just massive. They weren't easy to bring to the battlefield here. Man, and how times have changed. Oh, like, I know. I know like a hundred years ago, it's like you could easily say, oh, so long ago. But at the same time, it's not like. No, it's not just, that long ago. No, it's just, it's other, it's otherworldly in a way. It is. Yeah, absolutely. These huge stations took at least eight men to set up. And so they weren't like. You had to plan it out very well. And the aerial on these first ones uh, had a length of 520 feet. Sorry, 525 feet. Mounted horizontally on two 70-foot tubular steel masts. So it was just like... It's a good thing that technology kept going, that they kept researching this. Because at least by Hill 70, it wasn't that big. And it was wireless, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you gotta start somewhere yeah for sure and they they really they, i think they poured a lot of money into this technology and it was really ended up being really important because the artillery needed to know where to shoot yeah and the artillery was so important by this point in the war so another aspect that really helped the canadians at hill 70 was the air support and if there was a few new ideas with the air support um, first, they built an airfield at Mazingarb, five miles from the battlefield. So, I mean, not close, but for a plane, that doesn't take long. Uh, this allowed the British and Canadian pilots to take off as soon as an enemy plane was spotted near the hill and really quickly engage them. But even before the battle started, six days before the battle, they sent over a squad from that airfield to destroy the German observation balloons. Yes, they had observation balloons at this point in the war. Did we not talk about that? No, we didn't. I don't think we did. No, I I had it in one of my like original 20 <laughs> scripts of Vimy. <laughs> okay, good. I was glad you brought it up. Yeah. Yeah, so they used the, the Germans. I mean, we were using them too, but the Germans in this case... Um, we're using these balloons that were, they were not round. They were kind of cylindrical, I guess. Um, and they were, that means that they were harder to shoot down and harder to see. Um, but they were manned by the observation crew so they could see further than if they were just set up on the ground and they weren't as permanent as having to build towers. So the Canadian pilots got rid of all six balloons and with the close airfield, 
they shot down, or sorry, they destroyed two German planes and another three were shot down. So the Germans' hope of getting better observations was just completely shattered. And remember, yeah. they were on the low ground. They didn't have that that high ridge by the end of the next couple days here that I'm going to talk about. So by the night of the 15th, one holdout was the chalk pit that was between the north and, I remember I talked about the, the green and the red line. Um, so it was at the north end of where these lines met. And the chalk pit was actually a quarry that was secured by 10 German machine guns and tons of places to hide because it was a quarry. It had huge rocks all over the place and it was pretty dangerous. So on the 16th, the Canadians launched their attack onto the pit. The 10th Battalion went around the left side, kicking ass, killing 100 Germans and taking 130 of them prisoner. And at one point, when the Germans were retreating, the Canadians unleashed their own machine guns on the retreating men. But unfortunately for Privates Ewart Bateman and Harry Baxter, uh, they lost their tripod for their gun. But not wanting to miss their easy targets, Baxter threw himself on the ground and allowed Bateman to balance the gun on his back as he fired at the Germans. And this is not the first story we've heard about that. I can't remember which battle you said that, Ash. Yeah, I don't remember. But yeah. Yeah, this was like not an isolated incident. (laughs) I guess you gotta do what you gotta do. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. So that worked. (laughs) and they got lots they killed lots um but the fifth entered on the right side of the quarry uh but they ran into trouble through some really tough hand-to-hand fighting eventually they pushed through and made their green line but once they got there they knew the 10th were running somewhere as well like but they couldn't see each other and they couldn't get any communication between the two battalions because their runners kept getting picked off by some german snipers that were still hanging in the area but by the evening of the fifth or sorry the 16th the germans continued their advance towards the canadians and the fifth were only down to 15 men so they retreated back about 50 yards behind the green line to reestablish themselves and try to give a little bit more room in between them and the Germans. And at 6.30, a support company of 50 men met up with them, and they tried to advance again to the Green Line. And so that sounds pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, no. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Their machine guns had given up, and so they had to retreat again because they were running low on ammo. This left the 10th, that are a little bit north of them, exposed on their flank, and numbers dwindled very quickly. And eventually, later that night, the 10th and the 5th were both relieved. But by the 18th, the chalk pit still wasn't secured. So they made the decision to move back about 300 yards and straighten out that line and and get out of that dangerous area. Um, The German counterattacks continued with shells and gas and really intense hand-to-hand fighting, And they had brought in an elite Prussian guard to really give it to the Canadians here. So things weren't looking good on that part. I was going to say, like, when you bring in the Prussians, you know you're in trouble. Like, they're trying to pull out all the stops. Because whenever I hear about Prussian, it's like they're bringing the elite. (laughs) Yeah, it's never the Prussian guard. It's the elite Prussian guard. Prussian guard, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, On the 18th, German general... Ludendorff, and he was the deputy chief of staff, visited Lenz and decided that this wasn't actually a major offensive by the British. So he called off any further counterattacks on the hill. Uh, so he he kind of figured out what was going on and he sent some of the men back up. Ah, that, that Ludendorff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, Lenz was another story. He didn't want any more counterattacks, but that doesn't mean that they were going to give up the village that easily. So after a couple days on the 21st, the Canadians made their move on the village. They had secured the hill. They felt pretty confident um, and they thought, okay, this is our this is our chance here. So the 27th and the 29th battalions came out of their trenches 
But the Germans came out of theirs too. It's not like they stood there and waited to just defend themselves. And they started their advance across no man's land. And the artillery tried their best to push them off, but it really wasn't enough. And the 29th had to fall back to where they started. And the 27th were able to hold some of their objectives, but they really weren't successful either. So at the same time, the 10th Brigade attacked the west side of Lens. So they're all just kind of doing it at the same time. Um, And despite some really small successes, because of the really high casualties, most units were pulled back to exactly where they started. The original plan for Lens was figured out on the first day of the attack of the ridge on August 15th. And Curry and the rest of the boys decided that if their plan to take the west side of the village was successful, they would move really quickly to take a coal spoil heap that overlooked the east side of the village, and that was called Green Crassier. So we know that the first condition was not met because they didn't have success on that west side of the village, Um, but still some thought it was a good idea to take that heap because it was higher ground and and they thought that they could do it relatively with relatively low casualties. Um, According to the orders, it would be up to the 10th Brigade's commander, Brigadier General Hilliam, to decide if and when that attack would actually happen. The officer in command of the 44th Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel W.D. Davies, protested the plan. He thought it was not a good idea and they should just wait out and see if the Germans evacuated Lenz. And he argued that even if his troops did gain the height of the Crassier, they would be cut off by the strong German presence at Foss St. Louis. Louis? I'm doing well with names today. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Every day. Uh, Foss St. Louis was a small rise with a cluster of buildings to the northwest of the Crassier. Hilliam denied his complaints and on August 27th, or sorry, 22nd at 3 p.m., Major General Watson asked Corps HQ for permission to go ahead with this attack that night. And Curry agreed, but only if Watson was convinced that the plan was sound, that the troops were familiar with the ground, and that they had practiced the attack. Standard curry. Yes. Obviously, they wouldn't be able to practice it like they could before the initial attack or the way they did at Vimy, but at least they wanted to make sure that everybody was well informed about what they were running into. And so Watson thought, yep, let's do it. I think they can do it. So at 5.20, Watson issued an order to the 44th Battalion to carry out their operation against the Crassier beginning at 3 a.m. that night. Foss St. Louis, with a small cluster of ruined buildings covering access to the Crassier, was supposed to have been cleared of enemy troops during a previous raid, but only a few minutes before the zero hour that they were supposed to go over, the 44th Battalion realized that it was still being held by the Germans. So that was awkward, I guess, (laughs) with almost no notice the attackers had to split into two. So half the Canadians, well, half of the 44th Battalion would go take the Crassier and half would go into a Foss St. Louis. The first company mounted the Crassier rather easily in the darkness, but the other company faced really stiff opposition, including five machine guns firing at them. So when dawn broke, since Foss St. Louis wasn't cleared, they started strafing the men that had made it to the top of the Crassier with machine gun fire. The Canadians at the Crassier were cut off and soon began to run pretty low on ammunition. And the Germans started advancing towards them. And they were really, they were just effectively cut off and they had nowhere to go. And by late afternoon, the Germans had killed or captured all of the men taking cover there and Foss stayed in German control. So after this, they tried to figure out what went wrong and why Watson said it was okay to do this. Um, and it was obvious, obviously, the, the failure was that Foss St. Louis wasn't cleared. 
But the reason is because Major Art Mills, he was the acting commander of the 47th Battalion, and um, the 47th was holding Foss 4 near, near Foss, St. Louis. So that's a little confusing. Um, and during the 44th Battalion's attack. So someone, and Mills didn't call out who it was, um, apparently con- was confused and thought that Foss 4 and Foss St. Louis were the same place. So they said, oh yeah, no problem. We cleared Foss. That's great. No problem. It, it's fine. You guys go ahead and go in there. But they just mixed up the names. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, pretty badly for all those Canadians there. Um, but despite the little setbacks, Hill 70 was actually a pretty big success. Um, our, a man named Arthur Lapointe watched members of his battalion return from the front lines And he wrote that coming from the furnace after eight days of hardship and sorrow, the men's faces are haggard and their clothing torn and dusty, but their eyes shine with the light of pride in victory. So they they took what they needed to take that day and it did end up drawing Germans away and it was it was a success. But Lenz actually remained in German hands until almost the end of the war. So, I mean, nobody was... It, it didn't make a huge difference that the Canadians couldn't get it because by the end of this battle, things were moving elsewhere anyway. I sure hope that next episode we have some good news about on that Galavot Plateau. <laughs> you know, I'm just having really big deja vu with Galavolt and all that. It's just, you know, we did that in Ypres and I can't believe that we're going back there again. I'm sure the men couldn't believe that they were going back there again. A hundred percent. They were not thrilled to be back. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure uh, we still got a couple more months left in this battle, so I'm sure it'll get more interesting. Absolutely. But for now, we are done at Hill 70, at least. All right. So I guess that takes us to the end of our episode. Thank you so much for joining. Um, if you liked this episode, please um, subscribe, give us a thumbs up, uh, hit like buttons on whatever social media platform you're on. Uh, you can listen to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, or even on our website at whataboutthecanadians.com. Thanks. Thanks.